Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at a worship service Friday at 7, Saturday at 6, or Sunday mornings at 9 or 11. Good morning. Um, you ready? Okay. All right, let's do this. Okay. Uh, open your Bibles to Acts 15, and we'll read together beginning in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas, and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem... They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate... Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that is Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known From of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Amen. I want to begin with a joke. That wasn't the joke. Okay. Once I saw this guy hanging from a cliff. And I ran over and I grabbed his hand to keep him from falling. 
And while I had him, he said, thank God that you caught me. And I said, do you believe in God? And he said, yes. And I said, me too. What religion are you? And he said, I'm a Christian. And I said, me too. Protestant or Catholic? And he said, Protestant. And I said, me too. But what kind? And he said, Baptist. And I said, me too. And I said, great. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? And he said, Northern Baptist. And I said, awesome, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? And he said, Northern Conservative Baptist. And I said, oh, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist of the Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Baptist of the Eastern region? And he said, of the Eastern region. And I said, oh, me too. Council of 1912 or Council of 1856? And he said, 1856. And I said, die, heretic, and let go. It's always interesting to see how that joke goes, right, Zach? It's been a wild ride. It's been a wild ride. I think, I think that the way we view theological sort of dissension or discussion or debate, like we think of it like this, like, oh, we're just like constantly fighting over these little issues. It's not a big deal. How do we do these sorts of things? Why do we die on all these hills? And I think, like, that's like the picture we get. People go up on all kinds of hills, and they die for things that seem small, and the church is always arguing and debating over issues. The problem is this. Sometimes these issues really, really do matter. Sometimes they're not worth dying over. But as Christians, we have to identify which ones really, really, really do matter. And if I were to ask you, like, what is the biggest theological debate or conflict that we have? There'd be a wide variety of answers. If I were to ask you, what is the most important theological issue that we should be willing to fight over and die for? We might even get some different answers there. Today, we arrive at what's called the Jerusalem Council. This moment in the church where all the leaders gather together and they talk about the first major thing, issue, that is poised to divide the church. And it's the issue of circumcision. And to us, we're like, what? That was the first major theological issue of the church? Circumcision? Well, yes, but more than that, it was a stand-in for a whole wide variety, a complex of other things that would have been attached to the idea of circumcision. As we approach this council, we need to think about what's at the heart of the gospel and how that gospel is lived out charitably. You with me on that? what's at the heart of the gospel, and how that gospel is lived out charitably. We arrive at the first major debate in the church, and also at the same time, it happens to be a debate over the most central feature of Christianity. That is, what is the gospel? So it matters. It matters a lot. I think the first thing we learn from this is that God's grace saves God's people. God's grace saves God's people. Return with me one more time to verse 1, and we'll read the first few verses together. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. 
So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the believers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. This passage opens with the biggest lie, the biggest heresy, the greatest danger the church has ever experienced in all of its 2,000 years. And that is this, Jesus plus something equals salvation. Jesus plus something equals salvation. That is the lie that we are constantly dealing with as a church. It happens right at the beginning of the first council. It's only been like a decade since the church was born, and it happens. We see it in the words of the group from James or the group of Pharisees that say, you must be circumcised to be saved. And then a little bit later at the council, the other group says, you must be circumcised and you also have to follow the laws of Moses. They're saying, Jesus, plus these other things, those are the things that save you. Right at the beginning, we encounter this big lie, this devastating lie, this very unchristian lie, something that stands against and opposes the truth of the gospel. Now, I think we have to understand why the debate is about something that seems insignificant to us. We have to talk about why these Pharisees, who are counted as believers in the text, why these other people are saying you need to be circumcised. Why is it so important to them? Just do some Jewish background. You've heard of Abraham. Okay, hold on. You've heard of Abraham. Yes, Abraham is the father of the Israelites. We know the song. Stop, 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 stop. (laughs) Father Abraham had many sons, right? He's way out in the desert. He's called by God. He's sent to a new land, and God gives him a covenant and a sign of that covenant. He tells Abraham, you'll circumcise all the males of your household, and that's how you're going to be outlined as the group that I have called, not just to bless, but to bring blessings to all the other people of the world. Abraham lives his life. All kinds of things happen to him. We follow the sequence of his sons, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who gets renamed to Israel, has 12 sons. We get the story of Joseph. They end up in Egypt. And in Exodus, it opens up. And the family of Israel has grown into the nation of Israel, and there are hundreds and thousands of them under the oppression of Egyptian slavery. God remembers the promise he made to his people. Moses runs out to the wilderness. While he's there, many years later, he meets God. God sends him back to free his people. He says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, 
God sends 10 devastating plagues. Slowly, Pharaoh's heart changes. He sends the people out. We remember the story, right? The people leave Egypt. Pharaoh changes his mind again. They're on their way to the Red Sea, right? They get there, and there's an army approaching them, and God stretches his hand out again. And the sea parts, and the people walk through. They get all the way through. The Egyptians come in. The sea covers the people that are remaining, the Egyptians. They, sent, they go into the desert. They arrive at Mount Sinai, and when they get there where God's presence is sitting, he gives them at that moment after he's powerfully fulfilled promises to his people the law. The Levitical law or the Jewish law or the Mosaic law called by a variety of different terms. We can read about it in the first five books of the Old Testament. And that law mattered. It was something that showed God's people that they were God's people. It conveyed to them the holiness of God. If you read these books, you're reminded that God is holy and things that are unclean cannot be in his presence. So, so much of the law is designed to mark out the people as holy so that they might at certain times be in the presence of God. It protects God's people. It matters a lot. In many ways, the law, to their minds, is a gift given to them for a variety of reasons. And over the course of the rest of the Old Testament, we watch members of this people group obey God's law, show fidelity to God's law, show faithfulness to God's law, sometimes even in the face of death and persecution and torture. We think of Daniel or Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego. We think of all these characters in the Old Testament who were told, break God's law, and they said, no, I'm not going to break God's law because it's one of the ways that you know I'm a member of God's people. It matters, it matters. It is not like to us, maybe something like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a, a law, uh, international tax tariffs. There's probably not too many people in here that are just like consumed by that part of the law. That's not the way. That's not the way these Jews were thinking of the law. It mattered. If you continue in Jewish history after the Old Testament ends and before we get to the New Testament, there are all kinds of Jews who are now under the thumb, not of Pharaoh, but of this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. And he marches into Israel, into Jerusalem, and he collects Jews and he tells them, you have to eat unclean meats. And they say, we won't do it because we're faithful to our God. And he says, then I'll tear out your tongues. And they say, go ahead. We're going to be faithful to our God and the law that he gave us. We see it over and over and over again. We have to see that for this group of people, Jewish law is so ingrained into who they are. It's not an abstract set of rules. It's something that they used to identify themselves as a group. When they were sent out into exile, they were not in Israel, in Jerusalem anymore. They had no temple. They had no king. They could still obey the law. So it becomes important. And then we arrive in the first century where you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all these people who care about Jewish law. It's a super important part of their identity. They take pride in it. They're excited about it. Their heroes have died for it. And then Jesus arrives on the scene and he's crucified as the Jewish Messiah. And some Jews turn in faith to Jesus. And then we see on the other side something happen. We see God move powerfully among people who are not Jews. People who have never read the Old Testament. Maybe you've never even heard the word Yahweh or the name Yahweh. Who've never been to Israel, who've never been to Jerusalem. Don't know who Moses is. Paul and Barnabas go out on this missionary journey and they preach the word of God and all these people who are not Jewish, who are very far from being Jewish, 
fall down on their knees before the Jewish Messiah. And they're not told that they have to abide in Jewish law. They're not told that they have to be circumcised. And so, although Jews believed one day when the Messiah came, Gentiles, non-Jews, would return to worshiping the one true God, this question becomes crystal clear in their minds. Do those men and women who are not Jewish, but proclaim the name of Jesus, do they need to also abide by this law? The question becomes really sharp at the Jerusalem Council. And the Pharisee group stands up and other people have stood up and said, yeah, they have to do it. It has always been the way that we're able to stand in the presence of God. It's always been the way that we've shown people we're members of the people of God. And then Peter stands up and says, no, no, it can't be that way. Here's how he responds in verse 7. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Peter's like, I was there. I was there. The first day, I was there. When we were in the upper room, when we were awaiting the arrival of the Spirit, and it came on us in power, we went down into the streets, and we proclaimed the word of God in all these different languages, and people from all over the world responded in faith. I was there when God's presence was with us then. Not just with us, but within us. He's like, I was there when Sergius Paulus came to faith. I was there when Cornelius came to faith. I saw the Spirit descend on Samaritans and Romans. I've seen God's Spirit with God's people, regardless of whether or not they're Jews. And if part of the law was designed to permit people to come into the presence of God, but then I see God present with people, I must assume that they're now clean. And he says so. Their hearts have been cleansed by what? Faith. Faith. He continues. He says this. While Peter was still saying these things, oh, I'm sorry, I want to skip this one. Go right to 7, 10, 15, 10, I mean. How therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. He's like, listen, you've never been saved by the law. There's never been a human being, Jew or otherwise, who has been saved by the power of the law. All of us have been saved by the work of Jesus. Our fathers weren't saved by the law. We're not saved by the law. Gentiles aren't saved by the law. Everyone is saved not by righteous works that we think we do but by the righteousness exerted in Jesus at the cross. Hear that. Hear that. Not works of the law, but by faith. Why? Because who is righteous? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. He's saying to them, it is not Jesus plus something. Paul says very similar things. You guys have heard of Paul, the most aggressive of the early writers of the New Testament. Paul seems like the sort of person that you would want to like maybe hear talk but not hang out with a lot. 
really great. We need a guy like Paul, though. He writes this letter to the Galatians, and for sure it's his most intense letter in the New Testament. What's happened is the very churches that we've just read about him visiting, he preaches the gospel. They turn in faith to the gospel, and this other group comes in and says, also, you need to be circumcised. So some of these churches are thinking, should we do this? Should we not do this? Maybe some of them do go ahead and get circumcised and begin to abide by Jewish law. Paul hears about it, and he's like, are you, I was just there. So he writes them a letter, and he begins this way. In chapter three, here's what he says. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Oh, man. <laughs> Can you imagine? They're like, oh, we got a letter from Paul. <laughs> Gather together. Let's hear it. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We have to hear that as a church. There are only two religions. There's the religion that says we can do it. And there's the religion that says God has done it. We hear the Pharisees. We hear them say, yeah, you also got to be circumcised. You also have to abide by Mosaic law. And we look at that, we're like, those dummies, of course you don't have to do those things. They're saying Jesus plus something equals salvation, but our hearts fall into that just so easily. So easily. I want to remind us with scripture, just a bunch of places. You ready, Francie? Okay. A bunch of places, a bunch of places where the New Testament is clear. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by the work of Jesus and faith put in Jesus. Ephesians. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. How about Romans? One of the most famous paragraphs in the New Testament, and rightly so. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a payment by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he has, been passed, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul is saying, you don't do it. God has done it. Not just Paul, Hebrews. But we see him who for a while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone, for everyone. John, 
For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I want us to see that when we look back at this like first division of this church, this first argument, we hear what the Pharisees have to say. We hear what these particular groups have to say. We hear that they say, oh, you gotta be circumcised. You gotta obey Mosaic law. You gotta eat certain foods and not eat certain foods. We hear that and we say, of course you don't have to do those things. But then in our hearts, these but also's creep up. We desire in so many ways to muscle our way through sin and get to heaven. I know there's so many people here. We like collect these things and we grab them and we're hoping that when we die, we'll show them to God and he'll be like, you're in, you did a great job. If you ask people outside the church, how do you get to heaven? They'll say, you do, you do good things, you be good. If you ask people inside the church how you get to heaven, so many of them will say, you do good things, you be good. That is not what the Bible teaches. It is so easy, it is so easy for this same lie in a different form to creep back up into our hearts. I'm telling you, rest in the righteousness of Jesus. We can spend years Undoubtedly, some of you have spent years or even decades here around Christians, hearing Christians talk, hearing the word preached, but having never encountered the power of Jesus at the cross because your faith is still in something besides Jesus. How good you are, how successful you are, how much you pray, how much you read your Bible, how often you go to church. Those things matter but they are not the foundation of righteousness that we can stand on. Only the blood of Jesus. Only. Here's like a, a way to think of this. I think um, baptisms are great. Who likes baptisms? I love baptisms. I love them because they get to be this really tangible moment where we see God has worked powerfully in someone's life. And sometimes, you know, we, we always have these testimonies, and sometimes the person's testimony will be, like, really fun and exciting in certain ways. <laughs> like, oh, my life was just this crazy, insane life. I was involved in crime, or I was involved in drugs, or I was involved in, you know, some sort of religion that we don't know a lot about, but then God found me, and I put my faith in Jesus, and now I'm saved, and we all get super excited. We're like, yes, look at this miracle that God did in this person's life. And then sometimes, like, the next guy comes up, and he's like, yeah, I, um... I grew up in church. I watched, like, you know, VeggieTales, and, and, uh, and I, I went to, to Sunday school, and I went to youth group camps, and I, you know, I, like, I did all the Christian things, and then one day I just realized that I was putting my faith in myself, that I have to put my faith in Jesus. And we still clap. But we're like, that wasn't exciting as the first one. <laughs> it's the same miracle. It's the same miracle. Dead is dead. God took someone who was dead and he made them alive in both cases. If you're trying to jump over the Grand Canyon, it doesn't matter whether you're wearing Air Jordans or flip-flops, you're not going to make it. (laughs) 
I just know even in my own life, even in my own life, I grew up as a believer. I, I did all the things that that second guy did. I, I, I remember there's times in my life where I have these moments where these sort of but also's creep back in. I remember being at a camp where I spent a week serving people with disabilities and it was exhausting and I felt like I had done all this good stuff and I remember it's like Thursday night and it was a long week and I felt really good about myself and I remember like shortly before I went to bed, this thought creeped into my brain if I died right now, I'd definitely make it into heaven. I want us to find those lies. I want us to search our heart for those lies. You will never, you will never be approved by God unless you are found in the name of Jesus. That is it. Your whole life, your whole life, search your heart for works-based righteousness. Amen? We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Amen? Now, I'm not meaning to say that doing good things doesn't matter. Because I think this, although we are saved by faith alone, I think saving faith never remains alone. It necessarily, because you have a new heart, transforms you. And I think we see this, like even here, we see the heart of the gospel fought over by different leaders, right? Paul's 500 miles away, and he shows up, and he's angry. We've seen from Galatians, he's ready to go. He's got some heat. Peter shows up, and he's ready to go. James shows up, the group from the Pharisees. It is a debate. In fact, in this section, there might be, like, multiple debates they have. They still find this really remarkably charitable way of concluding the debate, even though it's over the heart of the gospel. We can continue to read in verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. I think from this section we learn this. Christian love limits Christian liberty. Christian love limits Christian liberty. God's grace saves God's people. Christian love limits Christian liberty. Here's what I mean. I want to jump to the last verse just for a second. James says, listen, Moses is read in every city, on every Sabbath, in every synagogue, everywhere you go, that's like a moderately large city where people might turn to faith in Jesus who are not Jewish. In that city, it's likely there will also be people who are Jewish who are turned now in the name of Jesus. How do they have unity together? Remember how central the law was to Jews, how it was a culturally and socially identifying factor. It mattered so much to them. Their whole life they've been told, don't eat this food, do eat that food. How do they sit down at a table with Gentiles 
who eat whatever they want? How do they sit down at a table with a Lystrian or an Iconian? And the Iconian or the Lystrian, he takes some sort of food that still has blood in it and he begins to eat it. And the Jewish guy's like, no, no, I can't handle it. And he wants to leave the room. How do we build unity? How do we build unity? He says, we knew that Gentiles were going to come to faith. That's why he quotes Amos. That's why he talks about the rebuilt house of David. A reference, I believe, to the resurrection of Jesus, where Gentiles afterwards were come to faith. How do we do it? While I believe our Christian love limits our Christian liberty. The four things he tells them to do, most of them have to do with table fellowship. Consumption of blood, animal sacrifice to idols, meat that's been strangled, meaning the blood's not been drained properly from them. He's saying... Gentiles don't eat those things. The other thing, sexual immorality, most commentators think that this is a reference to like how close into your family kinship group you can marry. <laughs> so Jews would not have been comfortable marrying first cousins. Gentiles would have been totally fine with it. And James is saying, Gentiles, just go like a little further afield to find a wife. <laughs> That's what you should do. Most of it has to do with table fellowship. How do you sit down and eat at a table together? Meals are just like one of the ways that we get to know each other. I meet with people all the time, and what I never say to them is, hey, let's go hang out at a park bench. I always say, let's get a meal or some coffee. It's like a bonding moment. This is how the early church was going to bond. They were going to eat meals together. They were going to have communion together. He's saying, how are you going to do it? Well, Gentiles, I'm going to ask you to lay down your rights. Lay down something that's probably morally acceptable for you to do for the sake of of a different member. I think the common example today that's used all the time just in modern culture is that of alcohol. I don't like whiskey. I really don't. But I lived in Scotland for three years. And um, it was like just everywhere, right? There'd be these university-sponsored events where I'd go and I'd spend five pounds and you'd do like a whiskey tasting and it'd be like eight molecules in each, just like Almost no whiskey, right? And I love getting the sheet that was like describing the tastes of the whiskey. You guys ever read these? They're like, this whiskey tastes like burnt ashes, pine needles, and an early sunrise. And you're like, no, no. There'd be one that was like, this one tastes like black coffee and dried pineapple. Then like on the same sheet a few down, it'd say, this one tastes like, you know, I don't know, oats, wheats, and dried pineapple cubes. And I'd be like, dried pineapple? Dry pineapple cubes, I don't think you can taste geometry. You can. So for me, it doesn't matter. But for people who live in Scotland, Scottish people that we'd spend time with, whiskey was a big deal. I think probably here there's a lot of people, maybe wine is a big deal, right? You like nice wine. And maybe many of you are very responsible with nice wine. You know how to just drink one glass. You know what? Not everyone here does. I want you to hear that. Not everyone here does. So you gather together with someone for a meal and you consider the fact that maybe, maybe alcohol could be a problem for them. So what do you do? Do you have the right to drink a glass of wine? Yes, but you are called to lay it down for the sake of someone else whom God has already laid down his own life for. That's how we do Christian community together. This is how these two points connect, I believe. 
we believe that Jesus is the master of righteousness. He's the one who gives it to us. He's the only one that truly is righteous. But he is also, in the New Testament, the model of righteousness. From Jesus, we learn how to live out in righteousness, not to be saved, because we already have been saved. This is all over the New Testament. We can go to Philippians 2. Here's what Paul says. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, the very form of God, comes down to like the dirt of the earth, lives a life of abject poverty, walks all the way to a cross where he dies a humiliating death. He didn't have to do that. But he laid his life down anyways. And as believers, we are called to live a similar life where we look to the self-sacrifice of Jesus and then we live lives that copy it. How many, uh, how, many, how many dads we got here? A lot of dads. I'm also a dad. Three now. Sometimes I forget I have that third. She's new. We're called to lay down both our actual and our perceived rights. Every dad here knows the feeling of getting at the car in the car at the end of like a long work day. Most of you do. And you begin to imagine what you want your house to look like when you get there. Do you guys, most, most dads don't want to be like, no, I'm fine with whatever. No, no. You get in the car and you kind of know what you're hoping for. Some, sometimes you like want to stay a little bit later at work, you know, just to give a little more time. You drive home, right? And I, I'm, I'm guilty of these sorts of sins. I, I come home and I have both unrealistic and unfair expectations. And like, you know, I want the dishes to be clean and they're not. And what I don't do is lovingly clean the dishes. I walk over and kind of like anger clean the dishes. Like loudly and with a lot of motion. I walk in and my daughter sees me. And it's like a predator who's just seen an injured animal. Like I walk in and she's like, oh, you're mine. You're mine till I fall asleep. Until literally my body closes down for the night. You're mine. I know that some men can get in their cars and they can um, dread getting home. Or, or, or you, could, you could do this. You can get into your car and you could begin to derive joy and satisfaction out of living your life like Jesus when you get home. You could say, when I get home, I'm going to die for my wife and I'm going to die for my kids. I'm going to live like Jesus lived. I'm going to die like Jesus died. You could do that. This applies to like every area of life. I just used husbands because it's the one that applies to me. But it applies to wives. It applies to moms. It applies to parents, to brothers and sisters, to neighbors, to friends, to coworkers, to everyone that you meet. You have the opportunity to illustrate the power of the gospel in the way that you treat someone. Now listen, you still tell them about the gospel. But you may illustrate it as well. Laying down both your perceived and your actual rights. Christian love, it limits Christian liberty. Amen? 
I want us to pray together. If everyone could bow their heads and we get the lights down. I think um, I want to just jump back to what I spent most of my, my time working through today. And I want everyone just to close their eyes and to bow their heads. I'm going to pray in a second here. I know in my life there was a moment into it, not, not as when I was a kid, like probably as a teenager or as a young adult, where I realized that my faith wasn't in Jesus. I was still putting my faith in something besides the work of Jesus. I know there are people here today who honestly just think they're Christians, but they're still in the religion of like sort of learning how man can do it, how human beings can do it. They're not in the religion of God having done it for them. Their faith is in their own works. Some of you, your faith is in your own works, some form of goodness, not in the goodness and work of Jesus. I want you to ask, what, what do you think keeps you safe? What do you think is keeping you safe? Is it some sort of charity you exhort on others? Is it how good of a dad or a husband you are? Is it how much you pray or how many ministries you serve in at church? If it's any of those things, you're not safe. You will never be safe if it is any of those things. You're only safe in the blood of Jesus. So if that's you, while everyone else's head is bowed, I just want you to raise your hand. I see that 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 one also. Charles Spurgeon, he's called the Prince of Preachers. He says this, every time you fight off the urge to bow down to Jesus, it gets easier the next time. Don't fight it rest in the work of Jesus. Is there anyone else before we pray? See that hand? Pray with me. Father, I put my faith in your son Jesus. I rest and trust in the work that he did at the cross. I believe that he died so that I might live. I believe as he was raised, I will also be raised. I thank you, you've given me a new heart. Empower me and enliven me to continue in faith. For all these things, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.